Good morning. How's everyone doing today? All right. Palm Sunday. As Tom said at the start of our service, this is a day in which we celebrate the last week of Jesus Christ's life on earth leading up to his death, his burial, but most importantly, his resurrection, which demonstrates that he was, in fact, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. This week, I really do encourage you uh, with the buttons that we're doing and with some of the opportunities we have for Easter. This is an important week, friends, to invite a friend or neighbor or a family member uh, to church. And I encourage you to really get behind that effort. Uh, it is so important at a time such as this to reach out to those who do not know Jesus Christ. They are perhaps most open at a time like this to coming and hearing from the Word of God in church. So I encourage you to invite a friend next week. Today we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, so as you're turning there, I would like to uh, tell you a little bit of a story about when I was a kid. My parents lived in a little home in Ukiah, California. Anybody know where Ukiah, California is? Okay, a few of you. It's about, uh, about two hours north of San Francisco. It's kind of a know-nothing town, not much to do there, you know. So my dad, not having much to do in Ukiah, California, decided to spruce up his backyard. And so he ordered in some, uh, some landscaping materials. And in particular, I remember when I was a little kid, he ordered in this, this large pile of stones, large pile of rocks, which he was going to allocate to a certain portion of the backyard to make it look more spruced up. So the, the, uh, the stone man comes in with all of his stones and drops it in our backyards. And I kid you not, there was a pile, at least as tall as me, of stones just sitting there in our backyard, all piled up as one big rock pile. And as my dad was considering how he was going to arrange and, and landscape the backyard, after a few days, this, we noticed something happened to this rock pile. All of a sudden, we would look at the rock pile and we'd notice all these little black ants crawling all which way throughout the rocks. This huge pile of rocks, six, seven, eight feet tall, was covered in ants absolutely covered in ants. Apparently, when we had dropped the stones, we had disrupted a colony of ants underneath in the earth. And so, my dad, wanting to impress his five-year-old son, got a brilliant idea. You see, he knew that stone did not burn. And so, what he decided to do was pour gasoline all over the rock pile, mind you, a six, seven, maybe eight-foot rock pile, pour gasoline all over it and light it for his son to watch. And he did. And it blew up into the sky, this, this fireball. And all of the ants were incinerated. At the same time, so also was my dad's right foot as he ran away from it. I, I was amazed. I couldn't believe it. My dad had set fire to something and in an instant it had blown up in a ball of flame and then it was gone. Immediately it was gone. You see, as a kid, I had watched things burn before, and I had watched maybe 
the fireplace burn, the wood burn. And, and I had noticed that there was a, a perpetual burning. But with stone, there was something impenetrable about it. And my dad knew in advance that he could light this stone on fire, and yet it would only, the fire would only remain as long as the gas was within and on top of the stone. Within seconds, that fire was gone. That gas was all burned up. That stone was not perishable. That stone was not able to be burned. Friends, today, I want to talk to you about a stone that is not able to be burned. A stone that is not able to fade away or to deteriorate, to be burned up. Peter is going to speak of the living stone of the New Testament, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, he is going to liken Jesus to a living stone and you and I also to living stones with Christ being built up into an impenetrable, unburnable, never deteriorating spiritual house of God. Let's read in our Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 2. The title of my message today is A Rock Solid Church Life. A Rock Solid Church Life. And I want you to turn to 1 Peter 2. We're going to start in verse 4. And we're going to learn what it means to have a rock solid church life. It says this, 1 Peter 2, 4. Peter says, Coming to Him, Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light, who, were, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, Your Son, Jesus Christ, is the living stone. Father, we as Your church are also living stones being built up together as a spiritual house that never fades. I pray, Father, right now Your Holy Spirit 
would help us to understand what this means, how this applies to our church life, and how we, as Coast Bible Church, can have a rock-solid church, one that is built on the living stone of Jesus. In His name we pray. Amen. Take a look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this, Coming to Him, to Jesus, as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. What is Peter saying here? He's continuing the thought that we left with from last week's study in 1 Peter. We've been going through the book of 1 Peter, for those of you that haven't been with us in some time, and we are coming now to a section of Scripture that is continuing where we've just been. Just last week we learned that we are to be like newborn babies, craving the milk of the Word of God. We're to be like newborn babies who crave a mother's milk, and so also we are to crave the Word of God. Why? That we may grow thereby. That we may grow up in our Christian maturity, in our love for one another. And now Peter says, coming to Jesus. This is a present tense aspect. We are coming to Him on a constant basis, Peter says, as to a living stone. Rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. I want you to take note of what Peter here is saying about Jesus. He is saying this. The Messiah, the Savior of Israel, was rejected when He came to earth. Peter is drawing his audience's attention, your attention and mine, back to the day in which Jesus was rejected by His own people. This simple statement about rejection is important. And shortly, Peter is going to explain a little further concerning what has transpired as a result of Jesus' rejection by Israel. Yet we are coming to Jesus, he says, who is like a living stone. Now, why does he use this word stone? Um, There are a number of answers that we might give to this. Uh, First, and I think the most obvious answer is, Peter's going to use the word stone because of what he's going to say in verses 5 and verse 6. He's going to use that illustration throughout this piece of Scripture. And so he wants to focus our attention on the metaphor of a stone. So that's the first reason why he's using this. But moreover, why might he be using the term living stone? Well, for the Jews, when they think of a stone, their their minds were immediately drawn to the temple. They thought of the stones of the temple. And by the way, this word stone, lithos, meant a, a crafted stone. Not just a rock that you find out on the beach or in a garden, but rather a crafted kind of stone, one that is already fit for production. A stone that is already fit for building. And so when the Jews may have heard Jesus speaking, uh, Paul, Peter speaking about Jesus as the living stone, their minds might be drawn back to the temple. How those stones of the temple were crafted in just such a way as to be a perfect fit. But what of the Gentiles? How would they have responded to this term living stone? Well, we can speculate from other portions of the New Testament, that the Gentiles worshipped idle stones. Peter speaks of this. Paul speaks of this. One of the practices 
in the first century pagan world, in particular the Roman regions, was to worship idol stones. I don't know if you remember some of the movies that have come out recently. Gladiator, one of the main characters, he had little stones that he would set up and pray to and worship. But these were dead stones. Peter says, I want to draw your attention to a living stone, not to a dead stone. To a stone that is worthy of worship, not to a stone that you might find in the ground. Peter is going to use this metaphor of a stone that relates to building a house. In the first century, such stones were needed to build a house. And Peter is now going to draw our attention in to this metaphor of a building. Take a look at verse 5. Peter says this, You also, you also, in addition to Jesus being like a living stone, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here, Peter, though he never mentions the word church in the book of 1 Peter, here Peter is very, very explicitly speaking of the body of Christ. Here Peter is speaking to the church. He is speaking to his Gentile Christian audience in Asia Minor. And he is telling them who they are in Christ and what they are to become. He says, you also are like living stones being built up into a spiritual house. How do we know he's talking about the church here? Good question. Take a look behind me at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. In this, Paul is writing to the Ephesians. And when Paul uses... When Paul uh, begins the book of Ephesians, he makes two distinctions. He makes distinctions between what the Jews have had in Jesus, have had as a result of God's blessing, and he uses the pronoun we. Later on, he talks about what the Gentiles have now in Christ Jesus, and he uses the pronoun you. Take a look at the pronoun you up here. He says this, Now therefore you, meaning Gentiles in the book of Ephesians, you are no longer strangers. You're no longer foreigners, but instead you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built, notice the metaphor, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ Himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Friends, Paul is highlighting here that the Gentiles have now been incorporated into the blessings of God. They are now being built up into a spiritual house, receiving blessings that were formerly not theirs. But now, they are being built up into a special dwelling place of God in the Spirit. Friends, I want to say very clearly, this is what we should take from this as we're, as we're studying this right now. The church is a, is a very special place. The church is a very, very special place. What occurs here is likened to a spiritual house. We are likened to a, a, a holy priesthood. No longer must we go through the mediation of a priest to get to God. No, you and I, 
the church have the ability to speak with God directly through the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. You are able to pray to God today because of the blood of Christ. You are like a priest of God now that you are a part of the church this side of the cross of Christ. Peter is trying to tell us and make it very clear in our minds that where we are today, not the building, but the church, the people of God in this room, this is a very special place. God works in special and unique ways among you, among us. One theologian put it this way. He said, There is a presence and power and manifestation of the Spirit of God meant to, be, meant to be known in this gathering of worship that we do not know at any other time in isolation. Something special happens when the people of God come together. God especially works. He is especially inclined to work amidst the church. As individuals, we certainly have the Spirit of God within us. We certainly can be lone rangers and yet still experience spiritual blessing. Yet, when we come together, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we worship with Tom and the worship team, when we hear a prayer from Joshua who is interceding on the needs of behalf of others, when we do these kinds of things, God's Spirit is especially at work. We're meeting each other's needs. We're praying for one another. We're considering one another as better than ourselves. Something special is happening in the church, Peter says. Something unique. And why are we being included in this church? Why do we come to church? Why do we join this family? Peter says this in verse 5. He says, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Why do we come together, friends? What's the point? Is it because it's tradition? Is it because we just like to show up on Sunday and, and uh, wear nice clothes and, and put our best face forward so that we can prove to everyone that we have no problems in our lives? No. We come as a body together, as Christians together, to offer up to God spiritual sacrifices. Now, Peter doesn't identify what these spiritual sacrifices might be. He doesn't so much define them. Later on in the book, he will. But I wanted to ask the question, what are spiritual sacrifices? How are spiritual sacrifices to be identified? Let me give you six options to consider. Six ways in which we might understand spiritual sacrifices. They come from both the Old and the New Testament. Take a look. A spiritual sacrifice, David refers to it as a broken and a contrite heart in Psalm 51.17. Isaiah says this. He says, Do good. Seek justice. Rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. In Isaiah 1.17. He was writing to the Jews who were not doing these things, but rather were focused on the physical sacrifices, attending to just the duties of the law, and yet neglecting the ultimate purpose for which God had for them. Micah says, Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. 
Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Give up your entire body to the Lord. Give up your physical life to the Lord for His service. Paul also says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These, friends, are spiritual sacrifices. These are spiritual qualities being exuded as a result of relying on the Spirit of God within us. And Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, this is a short list. We could, we could go into a whole study on what it means to be a person who offers spiritual sacrifices to God. But let me also say this. It is not, it is not so much concerned with what we do. It is concerned with how we relate to God and then live out our lives with others. As we, as we saw last week, when we look at the Word of God, when we're exposed to God's Word, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to change us. And all of a sudden, these qualities, these spiritual sacrifices, these attributes become natural in us because we've been looking at the truth of God. And the Spirit of God is altering our very lives that we might desire these things. This happens in the church. This happens in the body of Christ. You cannot find these kinds of qualities in the world today. You don't have another group that you gather with that you have the same kind of quality and intimate relationship with than the church. Are these things... Are these spiritual qualities what characterize Coast Bible Church? We must consider how we might play a part in building up the church that people might look at this group as the group that they want to be a part of. Paul goes on, excuse me, Peter goes on in verse 6. He says this, Therefore, it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, And he who believes on Him will by no means be put to shame. Here Peter is drawing our attention to the focus and the confidence of our faith, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he refers, as he refers to Jesus as a stone in verse 4, so also here in verse 6 we see he refers to Him as the precious cornerstone. Quoting Isaiah 28.16 here. He who believes on Him will by no means be put to shame. That is to say, He who believes in Jesus will not incur shame. There's no way they're going to incur shame. It's a double negative there in Greek. It's a, it's a construction that emphasizes in no possible way will you be shamed if this is the one to whom you are believing. That word shame there is also with a view to the future. The way in which Peter uses that word draws our attention to what we are going to experience in the future with God And that's what the book is all about. From the very beginning of 1 Peter, we've learned that this epistle is about receiving glorification. About receiving a portion of honor and glory in the kingdom to come. Peter says, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be put to shame. You will not incur shame when the time comes to be judged. Verse 7. Therefore, to you who believe, He is precious. Now this, uh, this verse here, I want to take a couple minutes 
and just point out a portion of Scripture where sometimes we need to examine it a little more closely. Because I think, and very rarely would I ever do this, but I think it is important to make a distinction between what, how our Bibles translate this verse. Take a look in your Bible right now. You, you all have different versions. Some of you, the New King James, the NIV. What I have behind me is the New King James version of verse 7. The, the start of verse 7, rather. It says, Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Notice the word he is in green. Those words aren't actually included in the original Greek. Uh, they are a translation of sorts, an inference of, source, of sorts, by the New King James translation. Uh, others of you will see in your Bibles, it'll say, Therefore, to you who believe, this stone is precious, referring to Jesus. But the words he is, it's important to note, is actually not in the original Greek language. And that word precious in yellow, this word can be translated in two senses. It can mean precious or it can mean honorable or honor. The reason why I give you a different translation here today is not to discourage our confidence in Bible translations. But it's to encourage us to rely on context as we read the Word of God. Notice what is said in verse 6. Who is the subject at the end of verse 6? Peter says this. He says, And he who believes on Jesus will by no means be put to shame. Who is the subject of that verse? Verse 6. He who believes in Jesus. Correct. The believer. And what will that believer not incur as a result of their belief in Jesus? Shame. Who is the subject of verse 7? Therefore, to you who believe. Who is the subject? Believers. Those of us who believe. And what is being promised to those who believe instead of shame? Honor. Friends, this is one of the few times, very few times, that I will ever draw attention to something that I believe is mistranslated in the New Testament. Um, I do not claim to be a linguistic expert in the New Testament. The people who translated the New King James had very good reasons for doing what they did. Yet, there are other Bible translations that would translate it like I am doing today. And this is not based on the kinds of... Tra- the kinds of um, texts that were given in the original Greek, it's all the same. It's all the same here. We're looking at the same language in the original Greek and coming to two different conclusions. I would, I would venture to say that what Peter is saying here is that instead of shame on you who believe in Christ, you will receive honor if you believe in Jesus Christ. So friends, I, I just wanted to take a, a little time to show you that. But let's not miss the point here. Let's not miss the point. Let's draw our attention back to the task at hand. Where is Peter taking us? Take a look at the end of verse 7. Now he's going to draw a contrast between those of us who believe, who receive honor, and those who disbelieve. The end of verse 7 says this. It says, Therefore, to you who believe honor, but to those who are disobedient... The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. Peter moves away from his main focus for just a few moments. His focus has been building up the spiritual house of God, the church, 
But now he turns his attention briefly to those who have rejected Jesus, the cornerstone. And when we read verses 7 and 8, what we read in it is teaching from Peter that has its roots in the teaching of Jesus Christ. If you would like to afterwards, I encourage you to turn to Matthew 21. You'll find, Pete, you'll find Jesus giving a parable that quotes these same Old Testament Scriptures that Peter quotes today. Peter was sitting under the teaching of the Master, Jesus Christ, taking notes, if you will. And later on, he uses the same principles in what he is saying here today. What Jesus had to say in Matthew 21, we're not going to turn there, but he was highlighting the fact that the Pharisees, the religious leaders, Israel, had rejected him as the Messiah. And as a result of their rejection, he had become a stumbling block to them. Instead of being a living stone that gave them life, Jesus for Israel became a stone of stumbling. One to whom Israel had fallen. Peter also gave a message to the Jews shortly after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what he said in Acts 4, verses 10 and 11. Luke is recording what Peter is preaching. Notice what it says. Peter says, Let it be known to you all, he's speaking to the Jews, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole, the man he had just healed. But notice what he says in verse 11. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, Peter says, which has become the chief cornerstone. You see, Peter uses 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. And Peter uses his preaching in Acts chapter 4, verse 11 to communicate one simple truth. The Jews rejected the Messiah. The Jews rejected Jesus. And instead of being a stone that gave life to them, Jesus had become a stumbling stone to them. Why do they stumble? The end of verse 8. They stumble being disobedient to the Word to which they were also appointed. Why did they stumble? Why do unbelievers stumble today? The answer, Peter says, they refuse to pay heed to the truth contained in God's Word. They refuse to accept the message of the Word that Jesus Christ is Messiah and Lord. He's the Savior. That's why people stumble. That's why Israel fell. The Word, friends, the Word of God, this book contains all that is needed for life and peace. It bears witness to the truth of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. As we read it, the Spirit of God illuminates our eyes and our minds, helping us to recognize this is truth. This is sure testimony. This is a firm foundation. And in it we find the message that by believing in Jesus Christ, we can be with God forever. How about that word to which they were also appointed? That's a, a scary word for some of us. We look at the end of verse 8 and we say, wait, what does that mean? What, what does that mean to which they were also appointed? It's the same verb used in verse 6 where it says, I lay in Zion a cornerstone. 
In verse 6, I lay in Zion a cornerstone, God says. In the same way, verse 8, the end of verse 8, Peter says this. He says, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed or laid before. What does this mean? Peter makes it clear that as in verse 6, God appointed Jesus Christ as Savior of the world. So also in verse 8, God appointed Israel, His chosen people, to stumbling. Yet still a silver lining exists to Israel's stumbling. Paul says in Romans 11.25 that blindness in part has happened to Israel that the fullness of the Gentiles, the fullness of the church might come. That the fullness of salvation might be given to you and I today. Blindness in part to Israel, fullness to the church. Fullness of salvation. Friends, you and I have been grafted into God's family. He's opened up the blessings of salvation to all who believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. Blindness in part to Israel, that is their appointment. Yet God still has a plan for them. And in all of this, a silver lining exists. You and I receive the blessings of salvation by faith in Jesus Christ, being built up into the church. And this is where Peter ends, verses 9 and 10. He he ends this portion of Scripture where he began, speaking of the church. He says this in verse 9, But you, you, in contrast to Israel, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. You once were not a people, but are now the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Notice the job titles of verse 9 there. We're given titles. We're ascribed titles. You know, in, in our world today, all of you who are working in the business world, you've been given a title. Vice President, President, Secretary, Administrative Assistant. All of us have a title, right? Teacher, Professor, Mom. That's a great title. All of us have a title. Yet, in our human lives, that title was earned, wasn't it? That title was brought about by means of our resume, which demonstrated to our employer that we were worthy of this job. We were interviewed. We showed forth effort. We demonstrated that we were competent, that we were able to handle the job. And so, the employer bestowed upon us a title. He says, because of your good job, because of your education, because of how hard you've been working, I appoint to you this title. Now go and and do the job. Such is not the case in verse 9. These titles, friends, have not been given to you and me as a result of our human effort. These titles have not been bestowed upon you and I as a result of the effort that we put forth. Peter makes it clear that the titles now ascribed to us in Christ are completely undeserved. Because we once were a people, excuse me, we once were not a people, but now we're the people of God. We once had not obtained mercy, but now we have obtained mercy. 
the titles, privileges, and blessings that we are now partakers of have been bestowed on us by God through Christ. They're the birthright of every believer in Jesus Christ. These titles, friends, they describe you. While Israel was formally ascribed these titles, now Peter says, so also the Gentiles have been grafted into God's family. And these titles now apply to you and I. Chosen by God. Chosen generation. Royal priesthood. No longer must we go through the mediation of a priest to come to God. We ourselves are priests. A holy nation. God's Spirit is working in you and I to conform us more to the image of Jesus Christ. He is sanctifying us, making us holy. His own special people or His own purchased people. But what is the point of a title unless it carries with it responsibilities? And so Peter says, this is why you've been given this title. The end of verse 9. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That you may proclaim, that is announce, report, advertise, display. That you may proclaim, this is why you've been given this title. This is why you are sitting in the pew today in church. You are a part of God's family today so that you will do that at the end of verse 9. That you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Proclaim His excellencies, His virtues. He has mercifully adopted us into His family and our response is to tell others of the goodness and mercy of God. Friends, I want to leave us with a final thought. Where, where is Peter taking us in our passage today? What does he want us to leave with? Consider this. The church is being built up, he says, by the Word and by the Spirit in our former lessons, so that we might offer spiritual sacrifices and praise to our Heavenly Father who has mercifully adopted us through Jesus Christ. That is why you and I are being built up together. And what can we do about this? What is our response to this, friends? I encourage you to consider this. Help build up this spiritual house, Coast Bible Church. Help build it up by leading and or participating in spiritual sacrifices to God. You've got a role to play. You're a part of it. God's Spirit is within you. You've been grafted into His family. You're a part of this church so that you will lead and participate in spiritual sacrifices to God. Consider your role in building up the spiritual house of Coast Bible Church. Friends, that is how we have. That is how we become a rock-solid church built on the living stone of Jesus so also we are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank You so much that You have grafted us into Your family. Father, we were once not Your people, but now we are Your people. We once had not obtained mercy. Father, because of sin and because of death, we were destined to be apart from You. That was the allotment of our life. Because of our sin, we were destined to be separated from You. But in Your mercy, You gave us Jesus. 
in Your mercy, You gave us Your Son, that by believing in Him, we might be restored to life. That we might be able to participate in the church, Your body. That we might be built up into a spiritual house that offers spiritual sacrifices of praise. Father, that is our calling. I pray that this church would become a spiritual house of worship. That we would attend to the needs of one another, of those hurting in our community and in our world. That we would be Jesus' hands and feet to those around us. By Your Word and by Your Spirit, Lord, I pray that these become reality for Coast Bible Church. In Your Son's name we pray. Amen.